it is my pleasure to welcome back Spec as the presenting sponsor of Fraudology this quarter. Stay tuned for more information and updates on their product capabilities, or click the link in the episode description to request your personal demo of Spec's TrustCloud platform. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Well, hi, I feel like it's been a while since I've done a solo episode on my own. However, I was just thinking about it and I think it's only been two weeks. Last week, we had a two-parter with Neil McCourig at eShop World. If you did not listen to those episodes, I highly recommend it. This episode's going to be good too, but Neil dropped some serious truth bombs that I think anyone on the fraud fighting side, as well as on the vendor side, will learn a lot from. And then just this last Tuesday, I got to talk with Sean Kelly, who just until a couple of weeks ago was the director of payments and risk operations at SeatGeek. And I really enjoyed talking with him about just some of the really crazy nuances that I'm familiar with because I've known a lot of people in event ticketing and in that space for years, but that a lot of other people aren't. And there's a lot that can be learned from the companies that have some of the highest risk products because they have to learn those lessons first. And so I think that that was a really good conversation too, not just about the issues that they have and the craziness that COVID brought, just these unknown circumstances, but also about Sean's career path and some of the things he learned and the things he enjoys doing. I just keep having the phrase zooming in and zooming out whenever I think about that conversation. And I think it's a really good way of putting it. When we zoom in and we look at the details and the data, and then we zoom out to say, okay, how can we either productize this or change processes and policies so that this problem isn't a problem anymore? So I'm just so lucky to know some of the best people in fraud across a lot of sectors. And I'm glad that I get to introduce you to a lot of them. Certainly not all of them, but Whenever I can, I love cross-pollinating of information, especially in this space, and love hearing about the connections and the opportunities that come out of people being my guests on the podcast. Sometimes it's a year or two later and a crazy opportunity comes along and someone says, wow, remember how you had this guest a year ago? Well, I remembered them and I reached out to them and we're now working together or I offered them a position or there's just crazy things. I love all of those connections and want to try to find a way to share some of those on the podcast soon. It can be hard to anonymize them, but I want to try to share some of those because some of them are just really cool and unexpected. And that's my favorite thing. If I can introduce you to your next great employee or to somebody who can help your company do something or a new solution that you didn't know about that you know, could really be helpful in your company, then I consider that a really good day. And I just feel like I am very lucky to be able to do that. So I know that on the episode with Sean, I think I mentioned briefly that I was considering talking today about some of the opportunities that payments can, or some of the things that you can identify, opportunities that you can identify in payments within your organization if you're more focused on fraud. And I think I also had some rants in my head about some things that have been frustrating me lately with just conversations I've had with a lot of fraud leaders that have been, is bamboozled the right word? I don't know. It really just comes down to solution providers not having their clients' best interests at heart. And it's frustrating. I will never be able to have my social, my sense of, I will never be able to isolate my sense of justice to people who steal payment methods or identities 
there will always be some of that sense of justice reserved for e-commerce merchants, as well as banks and fintechs, just overall fraud practitioners. A lot of times they have a lot of handicaps and a lot of challenges. And unfortunately, there are some companies as well as internal departments or forces that can just make it even harder. And it, when it's done intentionally or maybe just negligently, then it's very frustrating, especially when I hear the same names and same players over and over again. It's sometimes hard not to break my no naming names rule, but there's a big part of me that never wants to have to use my professional insurance if there's a lawsuit. But also, I feel like whenever you say the name of a company in any context, especially in our industry, that suddenly the story becomes about the company specifically and not the behaviors. So that is why I chose, I just thought about it more and I was like, it's just not really something I think is productive. So instead, I'm going to talk about something that is probably more depressing, but important for everyone to know, whether you work for an online company, a fintech, a bank, a financial institution, peer-to-peer money transferring, just any of those, any company, right, that has a fraud department, you need to be aware of a term that is probably going to make you think of a belly button. At least that's what it does for me. I don't know how this, if this translates to anyone else outside of the U.S. thinking about a belly button, but the term is innies and it's spelled I-N-Y-S. It's short for an insider and it's Referring to an employee for a company that is willing to not just bend the rules, but break them in exchange for money. So break them, break the rules at their employer on behalf of someone else, often stealing from their employee or enabling fraud or theft, either directly at your company or at using your company to exploit and steal from another company. And this is a term and this is a fraud threat that has grown greatly in the last few years. If we want to look at the silver lining, a big reason for that is because collectively as an industry, we have gotten better at identifying different types of fraud, identity theft and account takeover and payment fraud. And fortunately and unfortunately, because I think that this is something that all of us in fraud both love and hate at the same time, fraudsters will inherently go to the path of least resistance. And sometimes when you've plugged up all the holes of the things that they know how to do, they're going to find other exploits. And that refund claims fraud is a very good example of that. Count takeover was an example of that. Back when we started to get pretty good at identifying carding or different carding patterns back in back in like 2009, 2000 to 2012, something around there. Then actually, or even all the way through 2013, because that was the last two credit card breaches, but two large ones. But when it got harder to commit carding fraud or to get credit card numbers or to have them last long enough to do damage, then account details became a lot more coveted and the goal of hackers to steal to then sell to fraudsters to monetize. And I've talked about that on previous episodes, so I'm not going down that road. But as we plug holes, so to speak, new challenges arise. And that's where we're really seeing these insiders or innies being deployed and hired and used to steal from your company in a way that will be harder for you to detect. Not impossible to detect, but harder. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what they are, make sure everyone is aware that this is a current threat that is targeting some verticals of companies more than others, but I wouldn't get comfortable. I think it's something that everyone should be watching out for, because especially if it is, and I've seen this already, if 
people who are recruiting innies, so to speak, or insiders, if they find that a company is fairly easy to have an employee fly under the radar to assist them in fraud, then they will exploit the heck out of it and they will hire a lot more innies and steal as much as they can from your company. So I think the first step of prevention is always knowing something's possible, but I'll also talk about other ways that you can prevent and identify this type of insider threat. The, definitely a different kind of insider threat than we're usually used to. And internal theft has always been a concern for large companies, and oftentimes they'll have internal audit departments or other things to identify embezzlement and other types of internal theft. But this is very different because they're instead of the theft or the embezzlement or the fraud occurring higher up in the company, the people who are being recruited to provide these services, so to speak, are the people on the front lines. They're your customer service representatives. They are your in-store employees, oftentimes entry level, right? Non-manager positions, but they're able to do things. I've said this for a while, you know, that your customer service department has the keys to the kingdom and, but yet they're not paid well. And I'm not sure in a perfect world, I would say double the salary of everyone on your front lines. But I know that I'm, I can almost safely say that no one listening to this podcast episode is in a position to do that, nor would that be feasible in a lot of circumstances, unfortunately. So we have to just make do with what we have to try to combat this. And who knows, right? Even if you doubled it, would there still be people who would be inclined to take extra money on the side to do someone a solid or reroute a package that they shouldn't or change account login information or something like that? Probably. So I guess the first point I wanted to make, though, is usually the type of insider threat that companies are looking at if they think that there might be an employee that's stealing from them on the lower level is that typically you can trace it back to them. For instance, when I worked in payment processing, while I owned the Silicon Valley Bank portfolio, I also had some in-store transactions and a couple of other smaller portfolios with retail stores. And as a risk analyst, I would get exception reporting every morning. And there was one company that I remember, I think there were a couple though, but over the time I was there, that I would get exception reporting saying that they would have refunds that didn't have a correlating sale. So there wasn't a purchase on this credit card. There was just a refund. There was just money going out on this credit card. And usually that's not normal. Now, sometimes you might see that if a cardholder needs a return or a refund and they got a new card number or their card expired during the refund window, something like that. But it's usually one-offs. It's not super common. So after seeing this a couple times in, I think, a week or two, I reached out to the owner to see if there was a legitimate reason why this would happen. And they couldn't think of one. And I suggested that maybe they look at the schedule and see who was on duty at that time. And then they pulled the receipts for those refunds. And because the cards were swiped, they could see the cardholder name. And in every case, the cardholders either had the same last name as that employee or they were roommates of that employee. You were able to correlate those names to them because it was people that they knew, right? So they were saying, hey, come on into the shop at this time and I'll put money on your card and you give me half and you keep half or whatever the agreement was. And because you were able to correlate it and trace it back to that employee based on who got the money, it was a pretty easy case, not only for termination, but for prosecution, unfortunately. But you also have to, you can't go easy on it. And that was a choice the employee made. In these cases, because of the fraud as a service market, because 
especially in the last three years, but probably starting four or five years ago, you can now hire someone just to do one small part of the fraud life cycle or the scam life cycle. So I talked about this on the refund fraud episode where I talked about the five different methods of refund claims fraud. There are people who just provide boxing services where you send them the shipping label to the company that you want to claim that you're sending a box back to or the items that you bought back to, and then they send a box full of something back. I know most recently I saw an example actually on one of the fraudster forums that they were sending sand back in Ziploc bags so that they could match the weight very easily. So it wouldn't look like the retailer couldn't say the package we sent you was 10.2 pounds. But what you sent us back was 0.8 pounds. So therefore, you didn't send us back the item. Now they're doing sand to the exact same weight so that, wow, it looks like you sent the same thing back with the same weight. There are people that'll just do the boxing. You no longer have to do every single step along the way. And you just pay them a little bit all the time. Same with refunding, right? If you don't want to call the company or if you don't know exactly what to say to every retailer that you want to commit refund claims fraud against, you can hire a refunder to do it for you. And you just pay them a small percentage of what you originally paid the merchant, but then they issued you a refund and you kept the items. So there are so many different types of fraud as a service. I can't even list them all from buying full reports, credit reports of victims to all kinds of things. But in this case, fraud as a service is providing a market and really a demand for employees, often at the lowest level of your company, in your call center, in store or in person, in your warehouse, to commit small crimes. But there are things that they often do in their regular job, like issuing a refund when they're not supposed to, or rerouting a package, or changing account information or giving login information, they're doing that for a cost. And none of those people that are getting services from them can get traced back to them because they're not people that they know. There's no connections tied to the employee. It's not friends and family. So often it's just going to look like regular customer service activity. We used to look at that and go, huh, it looks like these are all people that they know. Now they're not going to be because they're going to find them randomly or they're going to be hired by a middleman or they're going to be something like that. So it's not as easy to identify. That doesn't mean it's impossible. It's just not as easy. So you can't be looking for it in the same way as you'd look for other type of internal theft by customer service agents. So as I just said, these employees are being paid to provide services to your fraudulent customers, performing the same types of services that they do to other customers, right? So if it's in a call center, it's fairly normal for someone to issue a refund claim, right? Maybe not every day in every call, but often, especially if you empower your regular customer service reps to do that under a certain dollar amount, it's not uncommon. They're also approving an illegitimate claim, even if oftentimes it's tied to a refund claim, but other times they can just issue a refund and not give a reason. It really just that depends on your systems. Rerouting packages. So I had a merchant client recently say, we can't understand why these orders are shipping to addresses that don't exist. And we're canceling most of them, but a couple got through. And so we're just waiting for them to get returned to sender to the warehouse. And they never did. And I said, I bet that's because of an insider at either on your end. So you should see if there's notes or if there's a record of someone rerouting a package from your company, because a lot of times at this stage, this wasn't common maybe five or 10 years ago, but now it's very common for most physical goods retailers to 
not allow anyone except for from their company. And sometimes they have to have a special password or special clearance to call the, or really they set this limit with the shipping company, right? So the shipping carrier says, you have to know the secret password or you have to work for this company. And I have to have proof that you work for this company in order to reroute a package. Otherwise, what was happening before that was fraudsters would just ship the item to the card holder. And then as soon as it left the warehouse, they'd call the shipping carrier and say, oh, man, I meant to send that to my sister's house. I didn't mean to send it to my house. So you can you send it to this address. So that's been fairly locked down on retailers now. But if you have an insider at the retailer or at the shipping carrier, you can have that done. And then there's placing fraudulent orders. If they if orders placed by customer service agents will bypass the fraud system, that doesn't always happen, but that can happen at some companies. And then account takeovers. And this happens a lot at financial institutions and banks, as well as e-commerce and different types of online companies. And that can be for something like a password reset. That can be a change of account information like email or address. They can place an order or a funds transfer with the call center device on file. So it doesn't look like it was anyone else but the cardholder because or the account holder because they called the call center to do it. Hey, I'm on the road. I can't get into my account. Can you just transfer this money or withdraw it? Or if it's an any, they don't even have to make up a story, right? It's just, hey, I need a transfer from this account to that account. Usually no questions asked. And then there's a couple of really specific things that innies are performing at different specific types of companies. And these are things that I think everyone needs to be aware of because these companies are often ones that companies that have the financial liability for fraud and theft rely on for different things. So one of them is telcos. They'll just do straight up SIM swaps. And I've seen several posts, even just as recently as today, for almost all of the main telcos in the U.S., saying, hey, my any works from this hour to this hour. All you need is the phone number, the current phone number that they have and a new SIM card. That's it. We're not asking for any kind of identity. So if you can do a SIM swap, if you can now control, have someone's calls, you know, you own the phone, what kind of fraud can you do? Banking fraud, you can do high dollar thefts of everything from a car to very expensive items. There's so many things if you're able to get that SMS or the one-time password, or you're able to answer a call from someone verifying an order or verifying an account or a high dollar transfer. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, 
need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Oftentimes they'll do SIM swaps in the middle of the night. So the person who has the phone doesn't even realize that they didn't have service for a while and then they'll do it right back. But in this case, it's it's running rampant and it's only depending on the telco, it's it costs a hundred to two hundred dollars to do it. And those innies are making about fifty to a hundred dollars. So they're splitting it with the middleman, the person who is out there making the posts and saying, Hey, I've got an innie at this place. From this time to this time, send me the phone number and the new SIM number. We'll get it hooked up. That middleman or that salesperson or advertiser is getting paid 100, 200 bucks. And then the insider is getting 50 to 100 for every time they do it. Shipping carriers. I mentioned it already, but reroutes as well as, and this is something I think I mentioned a tiny bit earlier, but this is something that is, while it started with just a couple of large retailers back in November, now I'm getting more and more questions about this, and that is there are several insiders or also possibly compromised employee credentials for shipping carriers that allow refund fraudsters to change the final status on a delivery that uh, was delivered. So in the flow, item is delivered to that person, but then sometimes it's soon, sometimes it's later, it will then be changed. The final status of that package delivery will be changed to lost in transit or return to sender or something like that. There's a couple of other codes too. And that unfortunately is really impacting a lot of retailers, especially first the refunder is hoping that they can just call the call center and say, hey, I I never received this item. Can you look it up? And the call center sees the final status and looks up the history and says, oh, okay, yeah, it looks like it was lost in transit by our shipping carrier. We'll refund you. And then The merchant can really only file an insurance claim for up to $100. So sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, depending on if it's even worth it to have insurance. If they have a really high average order value, it may not or it just may not be worth it. It's different business decisions. But what's also happening is if the person can't do get away with that at the call center or there's no refunds available at the merchant, they'll go to their method of payment and say, hey, I didn't get it. See? Look at the final status of the tracking. It says it was lost in transit on the way to me, so I shouldn't pay for it. But that's really because they either had access to someone who works for the shipping carrier or they had access to someone who has employee logins for that shipping carrier to be able to do that. And then we're also seeing for banks and peer-to-peer money transfers, a lot of account takeovers and fraudulent withdrawals and transfers. So as always, I feel like I am continually the bearer of bad news, but I also subscribe to the idea that I think it's very important to know what's possible. Otherwise, you're looking at something or you'll hear something and it just might not click because you don't know that it's possible. So knowing that this is happening, that a lot of customer service agents are being recruited in different ways, and I'll talk about how and where and all that in just a minute. Hopefully that helps you have your guard up. 
and know what to look for, as well as to prevent it from happening. So as I mentioned, guineas are usually paid depending on the service, though how much risk it is, how much value it is to that user. For instance, the change tracking number information, it can be $35 per. I've actually seen it range depending on the shipping carrier. So $35 to $50 per order. But if that order was worth $5,000, that's a really good ROI for those fraudsters. And they didn't even have to steal a payment method because if they're doing refund claims fraud, they're just calling customer service and saying, oh man, I didn't get this packaged. Can't you see? It was returned to your warehouse. I don't know why it hasn't been checked in yet. So I need a refund. And up until very recently, retailers could rely on that final status of the shipping carrier. Why wouldn't you? So it's important to know that's possible. I should say on shipping carriers, I don't know about telcos. I think telcos are aware too. I do know that most shipping carriers have been notified by more than a couple of their clients, but at least right now, that hasn't been something that they have been proactive about resolving. So if you work for a shipping carrier, know that you might get more calls about that. I've sat on this for five months, more or less, not meaning to sit on it, but just I didn't want to press any alarm bells unless it was impacting more than just a couple of large companies. And now these are very common. I'm seeing these posts almost every day. Seems like there's an infinite number of employees that work for shipping carriers that have the ability to change the final delivery status or reroute packages. That would be, I definitely have many suggestions that I would provide the shipping carriers if they <laughs> wanted to work with me to tell them how to resolve this even without a technical fix. But right now that hasn't seemed, and again, I haven't spoken to them directly, but I know that many of their large accounts have, and they haven't had great success at finding anyone who's committed to finding a solution. And it's unfortunate because their clients are usually the ones who are losing the money. So usually innies are paid a flat fee, but of anywhere from $20 USD to $200 USD, depending on what they're doing. Sometimes it can be a percentage of the order value, but usually what the middleman will charge will pay them is just a flat fee, makes their life easier. And usually they're paying them via peer-to-peer -peer money transfer apps or, yeah, I think mostly those, if I think of, as I think it through. Most of the employees that are being recruited for this are going to be the lowest level. They don't want people above supervisor level because oftentimes there's loyalty, more of a conscience getting paid more money and with the economy the way it is and wages not moving up as quickly as inflation, there's a lot of people that could really use extra money or would be willing to bend the rules for extra money. And there's always a few, but it seems like the harder the economy is, the more people that are, right? Especially if it comes to feeding children or other needs like that. So the only caveat to that is unless a specific task requires a manager, then those services are quite a bit more, can be a few hundred dollars. And I think from what I've read, it seems like if a manager or supervisor is needed, it's really oftentimes they won't bother. For instance, if, if a manager is needed for a transaction over $500 or something like that, they might not do anything over $500. Or if they do, they might be very conscious about who they're recruiting. So it might be a friend of a friend or they might put them through a fake interview process to determine if 
they're, if they could be trapped or if it's legitimate or if that person would be willing to do that for them or if they're going to rat them out. Typically, it's the lowest level. And some of the ways that they're recruited, often you'll see some posts in Telegram groups, I'm looking for an innie at this company or I'll pay top dollar or something like that. But usually it it seems like most people in these groups aren't employed. So a lot of them are already committing refund fraud and don't have a full-time job. Or if they do, they may not have been there for very long or something like that. Usually it ends up, if I see any comments on those, it's something like, oh, I've got a cousin that works there or a friend of mine works there. I'll have them hit you up, something like that. They'll ask because they're all, it seems like all of them are very opportunistic. They'll ask if there's a referral fee, right? If my cousin will do it for you and will be an innie at this big company. Will you pay me something? So I don't know how those conversations go. They usually happen offline, but most of the time they won't do something for free. And it's funny how that works. It's not the same as the legitimate side where we all want to help each other. This is what's in it for me, even more than usual than just what's human nature, right? Sometimes you'll see posts on social media like Facebook or Instagram looking for somebody that works at here or here, but then also they'll go searching for them. They'll look for a member of if there's any Facebook groups for employees of a certain company, they'll go look at the membership and what's public. They'll also search for people who put that specific company down as their employer on Facebook or Instagram. That's another way, right? And then they can look at the profile and think, huh, do they need the money? Is this someone I could reach out to and say, hey, do you want to make some extra money? Something like that. So that's when they're being proactive and looking. Sometimes they'll go on LinkedIn, but from what from what I know, there's not there are some lower level customer service employees that do have a LinkedIn profile, but it isn't as common. It really depends. If you work at a bank, you probably do. But if you work in a store or a retailer, you may not know, you may not use LinkedIn. So that really is dependent, but that is a tool in their arsenal for recruiting, as well as sometimes you'll see some job postings. But it'll say something like, if you work at XYZ, you could earn extra money. And then they'll say it's for something like surveys or training or resume coaching for people who want to work there, something like that, just to get you to apply. And then they'll have a phone conversation and kind of give you a phone screen to see if you might be someone who could do that for them. And then also sometimes they'll go inbound and they'll just call or chat to customer service reps or stop by a store and commit social engineering, right? To see if they're a good candidate, strike up a conversation, become a buddy, maybe call back one. Hey, remember me? And hey, could you just do me this one favor? And then after they do it or something like that, or if they're willing to do it, hey, would you like to make extra money doing that? That's the playbook on that. So it varies, but those are the most common ways that they're finding recruits for people who work at your company. So how to prevent and identify it. That's what I wanted to spend some time talking about too. On the prevention side, I'm always going to be a huge fan and advocate for education. So Educating your frontline staff that this is considered fraud. You know, what is it? What might happen? Who might contact them? How they might contact them? And if if they do this and if it's identified, they will be terminated and maybe prosecuted. That can sometimes be enough of a warning that can also help not arm, but just inform their coworkers that this can happen. Right. So if all of a sudden they see, huh, that guy keeps getting people asking to be transferred to him. 
or people keep walking into our store or calling our store and saying, hey, is that person working today? That might be a sign. So just things like that. Just even just providing education internally can be helpful. Also, educate your customer service managers and your store managers on the possibilities and the warning signs. Like I said, right, if there's calls asking for them or walk-ins asking for them, if they're being secretive, if they have exception reporting that they're able to look at. Those types of things, you may need to make it part of the manager's job to be required to perform specific action. You can also show your frontline staff appreciation, small bonuses or gifts, or really encourage your managers to make it a good environment because people are less likely to steal from your company if they enjoy working there and if they're loyal and they don't want to leave, they don't want to risk getting fired. I'm not saying give everybody a thousand dollar bonus or something like that. There's the carrot and stick approach always. And the carrot approach in this case would be make it a good place to work. Make them loyal and second guess and think, oh, I really want to, you know, stay here for that holiday party where we all get an extra gift card to go out to dinner or whatever that is. Those can be those can be really meaningful. I started out as frontline customer service. And I know those things meant a lot to me. And sometimes in some cases, depending on the type of company you are and the different actions that are happening, you may need to require a manager to perform specific actions if it's not something that's super common. So like I said, something over a certain dollar threshold or in order to change email or in order to do a SIM swap, I need somebody else to sign off on this and I need someone else to review this first things like that. And yes, that does mean more manpower, but think of how much money you could save, especially the telcos and the banks and the shipping carriers that are being targeted right now. I think it would be well worth it. And it would certainly make it harder for people to use and recruit and even want to have the demand to get the supply from your insiders. And then here are a couple ways to identify it. And again, this is all going to depend on your company, but I hope it at least plants a few seeds to think about what can be done within the parameters of your company. Train managers to run exception reporting and not only totals on refund claims or on reroutes or account changes. Don't just see like how many did they do, but I suggest to look at it as a ratio. So what percentage of calls did the, that person get on that day compared to their peers that resulted in issuing a refund without an item being returned to our store or what percentage of people came in to our telco store and had a SIM swap? Is that common? Does that happen 27 times a day for one employee? Or is that usually more like one or two? So not just the count, but also was that 20% of their the tasks that they did today for a customer? Or was that 70%? And how does that compare to other people at similar days and shifts? This is actually something I had to recommend to a merchant about a week or two ago. I was perusing one of the fraudster forums for something totally different. And I came across a post about a merchant that I know fairly well. And I couldn't believe it. This person actually wrote the full name of the any at that company. And they said, oh, yeah, my cousin works there. He'll do it for 50 bucks sent to his such and such account. The, I don't even think they did his hours, but they hinted it when he worked and then kind of gave a decent idea or the time zone at least, and then gave his full name. And so I sent a screenshot of it to that merchant and just said, hey, I have no idea if this person works there. It Either this person, somebody made this up, or it really is a real person who's doing this, or it's a real person that works for you, but somebody had a phone call with them and didn't like them. And they put their full name here to see if they could get them in trouble. So don't just take this screenshot where, you know, word for it. 
But I would suggest having your internal security or have you pull up the ratios, right? What percentage of refunds are they issuing on very expensive items? I think the average order was like $900 or something like that. Are they doing that 80% of the time whenever they have calls and then 20% is on other things? So again, you can't really look at who they're doing it for and make any correlations to that person, but you can look at the percentages and the averages and what's normal. Now, if it's normal for everyone in the store or everyone in customer service to be doing SIM swaps all the time, then maybe you look at a different, a, another layer of detail that can tell you more. Consider doing quality assurance on random calls or customer interactions in store. And a lot of times for customer service agents and phone and call centers, they'll do that anyway, right? But maybe train the QA person to just watch out, right? And see how the conversations go. And does it sound like they're conducting more of a business transaction than a customer service action? Things like that. But if you're in store, look at surveillance footage or have managers keep a closer eye on a specific employee if the metrics look like it's this could be a little bit odd if it's really suspicious you could require someone to listen to all of their recorded calls or look at surveillance tapes or hope that you have audio recordings or things like that if you do suspect someone it's good to engage your corporate or internal security if you have one and your legal departments for next steps i will never pretend to be a lawyer but i know at least in the u.s this is a terminated this is an offense like it's a fireable offense I don't know what it is in other countries. And I think Neil McCourig pointed out some really good things to think about as far as international employment law. Make sure that you know that before you tell someone they're fired and then have to go, oh, I guess you still work here, even though you facilitated people stealing from us. Or maybe you have to document it first and give them a warning or something like that before you terminate them. Consider pressing charges. Consider prosecuting because that will send a message internally. And even bigger, to create a really big message, not just internally, but externally too, you can consider once someone's prosecuted or once someone's even arrested, you can consider a press release. That's something that Amazon did back in October of 2020. I remember reading an article in Business Insider that was really all about an insider. Of course, Amazon was hit with insider fraud before a lot of other companies. And I'll try to remember to include a link to this article in the show notes. But the headline is a former Amazon employee was arrested and charged with fraud, accused of issuing $96,500 in false refunds to himself and others. So in this case, he was issuing refunds to people that he was fairly connected to. But that was before fraud as a service was had such an infrastructure like it does now. Now you, he could have done it to people that he didn't know. And Amazon does not issue press releases about fraud very often. So this was a very clear and conscious thing where they were sending it out to a couple of journalists to say, hey, we want this out there. That's something that similar to what I talked to Robert Capps and Erica Bowles about last summer when they worked at StubHub and they prosecuted cases and then they went to the press and had headlines written about them and they would see a direct like a huge dip in their fraud attempts just even the next day because that information gets out. Also because the majority of the fraudsters that were attacking them were then arrested, but it's also because it gets out. And just as much as these criminals in their forums post about, hey, this company's easy here or this company's easy there, they also post about, hey, it's that company is patched is what they'll say, or that specific method is dead meaning the merchant fixed it or the bank fixed it. Or they'll post a link to an article and say, oh, 
let's not mess with them because they actually work with the police. Let's be honest, it's so rare for banks and online companies to work with police or any law enforcement agency that usually will scare a lot of them away or most of them because there's other targets. There's other people, so to speak, running from bears that are slower than you with that whole, if you don't know the saying, you don't always have to run faster than the bear. You just have to run faster than everyone else running from the bear. That's what I meant. But issuing a press release sends a warning to other employees. And like I said, word will get out not to recruit any insiders or innies for your company. And it also shows your customers and your shareholders that you're, protect, you're protecting the customer experience and your shareholders stock value. So it's not a bad thing. I know that often comms teams will try to say no, but that's why I want to provide the link to this article in the show notes and why I provide those little tidbits about how to communicate it to other departments. Hey, this is actually a good thing. It's not just about, ooh, there we had fraud. It's about the message that it sends, both to prevent future fraud, as well as to send a message to your customers and say, hey, we're not taking this laying down. We are not, we're doing something about it, right? We're not just letting this happen. We're not letting people steal from our company. We're taking care of it and we're trying to protect your investment and the your experience and the cost of goods to customers. So I think that that's enough of a brain dump today, but I hope that this may have been depressing or frustrating. I do hope it was interesting and it gives you something to consider internally. I always enjoy your feedback. I also really appreciate people that send me questions. I can't always respond to them in a LinkedIn message or in an email, but I've been compiling some of them for a future Ask Carice Anything episode. And I'm also going to have Doriel from Forder back soon to be able to answer any questions about his episode, some of the topics we talked about there, as well as any other questions that you might have for Forder. All right, guys, I hope you have a good rest of the week and I will look forward to speaking with you next week. Thank you again to Spec for sponsoring today's episode. I'm really excited for more online companies to see what's possible with their fraud infrastructure. Spec's Trust Cloud is way more than just another fraud product, and I hope you'll visit www.specprotected, that's S-P-E-C-P-R-O-T-E-C-T-E-D.com to learn why.